Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Oh, Jack. Jack O'Hara. Boy, you asked me some interesting questions, my man. It's a great question, Jack. Jack, hey, it's Josh Radder. Hey there, Jack O'Hara. It's Johnny Damon. Jack, you had questions for me. Jack O'Hara? Absolutely. This message is for Jack O'Hara. Jack, how are you? Hey, Jack. Jack, hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? What's going on, Jack? Uh, listen, man, you know, you, you, you asked me a couple questions. Live and broadcasting around the world, you're listening to The O Show. In the show and uh, doing your thing, I mean, you've got some pr- pretty big name guests. I've seen your, your stuff, so congratulations on your success. Jack O'Hara. Much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien with much better interviewing skills. Don't forget to share this episode on your social media. Now, let's get to it. So boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's only gonna break up with you. She's definitely gonna break up with me. Should've used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. the O Show. I'm not Jack O'Hara. No, my name is Zachary Kelly. I'm here to celebrate a very special occasion with your host, Jack O'Hara. Thank you, host Zachary Kelly. What is this special occasion? It's a three-year, correct? Is it a three-year anniversary? Three years, three years. It was May 26th, 2018. Me and my brother Declan started this show. I think we have a picture of it up there. Uh, My brother, for whatever reason, is moronic cynical ass was wearing a uh, Darth Vader mask oh my God. when we started this show in our basement. You could see uh, Mariana Rivera, CM Punk. There's a WWE Money in the Bank briefcase there, a bunch of shirts. Uh, we grabbed our flat screen TV from our living room, put it in our basement bar for the show. Uh, we looked at each other kind of like how we're looking at each other right now, hit record, and it was just straight silence because we had no idea what we were doing. That's incredible. So what... So. What I want to ask you is, obviously, the, you, when you first did you did it with your brother, uh, first question, how long did you, was he a part of it? And two, what was the big motivation that kept you going and wanting to do it even after he left and it was just you by yourself? That's very interesting, Declan. I'm hoping you're listening. Because he was actually supposed to come on last week, and he, uh, he ditched me for <laughs> his buddy. He had a tea time or something. So. Tea time? Yeah, oh so he God. can't be here today, but... Uh, he's three years younger than me. You know, mm. I was 19 when I started. He was 16, so he kind of just phased out of it. He, he lives in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a musician. He's doing his own thing. Best of luck to you, buddy. Um, hopefully, we'll have him out here fairly soon. But he, he just phased out of it, and I told myself from the beginning, I'm going to do this until I can't do it anymore, you know? Like, nobody's going to stop me yeah, from I doing com- this. No, I like that. I like that. So we're 360 episodes in now, and we're Crazy. still trying to kick ass in some way. Well, you are doing a great job at that, my friend. So speaking of that picture, so you mentioned, like, the CM Punk, Monterey Rivera, and all the other, like, knickknacks you have in there. It's funny that you mentioned some names like that, because you've been getting some pretty big names on the podcast. Do you have, like, a particular moment when you, like, whether either whether it was a big name or, like, even, like, getting in contact, even if they didn't make it on the show, where you realize, oh, shoot, I might be able to make this a real thing with really cool guests, really interesting guests, and I may make this, like, just something that, like, people would want to watch who have no idea who I am. Was there a particular episode number or, like, even, like, moment in time where you realize, okay, this is something real, this is going to be great? Well, you know, growing up in sports and wanting to be a sports broadcaster, I was able to get in touch with, you know, MLB broadcasters, sports personnel from, like, Barstool Sports. I think Dave Portnoy was, like, the first big name I got in touch with, like, my freshman year in college that would want to do it. But I think this really kind of stemmed from COVID. Not to talk about COVID, because everybody talks about (laughs) COVID on their podcast these days. I don't want to be one of those people. But because of that... Everybody was in their homes doing nothing, and nobody had an excuse not to talk to me. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful, you know? Like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. Like, no, you're not. You're in your house. It's Tuesday at 3.15 like like work. 
You know, it was mm-hmm. kind of like that. So Jordan Belford was the first guy I reached out to. That was probably the biggest notable name at the time at some point last year that I reached out to. He was like, yeah, buddy, I'll carve out 15, 20 minutes, whatever. And then that kind of, you know, resulted in, you know, Josh Radner, who plays Ted Mosby in How I Met Your Mother, Kobe Smolders, Shane McMahon from WWE, Carol Baskin, who's, I think, everybody's favorite. Um, so kind of, I, I took advantage of a time that was kind of difficult and rough for a lot of people and kind of molded um, my diamond, in a sense. That's awesome. And we're still going. Yeah, still going super strong. Uh, Got you a job. It did. It did. I'm grateful for that. Very, very nice friend you are right there. Um, but one one thing I want to go off on that is you t- you mentioned that it was sports was the first thing that like obviously was your big passion. You did sports broadcasting for GCU. How much do you think that it was your experience talking in front of a mic in terms of things like GCU baseball games uh, that helped you improve, or how much do you think it was just the repetition of the show? That made you such a good interviewer because, like, even like compared to some of the other ones on the network, and, and despite your young age, you just seem so seasoned for someone at only twenty-two. I just want to know, like, was that just like through work? Was it just through like three hundred and sixty episodes now? What was that sort of growth like? Yeah, for all of you guys watching on YouTube, this show is just basically about everybody kissing my ass for the three-year anniversary. That's basically what this is going to be about. Like, oh, you're such a seasoned vet at only 22 years old. I don't know. I, I'm a curious guy. I ask the questions I want to ask. I don't care who's listening to this. Mm-hmm. Like, for the most part, my mom and my dad were my only listeners. My dad constantly would, like, critique my episodes after I launched them. Uh, but I don't, I don't care. I ask the questions I want to ask. I don't care if they're, you know, politically correct. I don't care if I mean, they'll care if they're offended by it, but I'm going to ask the questions I want to ask with all due respect, you know? Mm. And I'm able to... I think the biggest thing is listening to your Mm. guest, and I think anybody would tell you that, whether it's Dave Pratt or Howard Stern or anybody else, you know, Joe Rogan. Yeah. Prime example of that when it comes to podcast content creating uh, right now, you know? If you listen to your guest, you're able to take the conversations in ways that you didn't expect them to go. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what I've been able to do with some of these guests, you know, have longer conversations than I did three years ago when I first started out. You know, I grew up a very quiet kid. You probably couldn't get five words out of me in a day. Like my, my dad. I, I hard really that. Hard my, really. my father was stunned when I told him I wanted to be a broadcaster. He's like, are you sure you want to do this? Because, like, I never said anything. Really? I didn't have any conversational skills. And quite frankly, I didn't enjoy talking to people. That's so crazy. That, that's wild that you changed like that on a head just as soon as like you decide you want to do broadcast and you just got so good at it so fast but one one thing that I want to mention is you mentioned the Carol Baskin episode and like everyone talks about that being their favorite but one of my favorite parts about it obviously you know Tiger King was like she had a big name but you asked her questions about like her shelter and like how like she did it with like smaller like smaller cats and like her stuff like that was completely unrelated to like the other people on Tiger King that was like her own personal story like that and just felt that was just so interesting to me because it felt like so different than every other interview she did where it was just, you know, stuff related or adjacent to Tiger King. And that's been a case throughout a lot of your uh, shows. So how does the research process go? Because you talked about wanting to ask the questions you want to ask, but how does it, when you, like, have a guest booked, what's the research process that so you don't ask them questions? One, that you, have, you haven't heard the answer to uh, before, but more importantly, they haven't heard that question before. How do you, like get to that point. Well, we kind of kind of just talked about it, you know, listening to them, you know, and mm-hmm. letting them talk about what they want to talk about. And she probably talks about Tiger King more than anything mm-hmm. when she does press, when she does interviews. That's all people want to know, you mm-hmm. know. Why not talk about stuff she actually wants to talk about? Mm-hmm. Then that could stem into something that is totally unrelated that might be interesting and something different for you to put out, you mm-hmm. know. And both sides get a lot out of that, you know. And I think she thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, she gave me a big thanks uh, via email afterwards, just saying, like, that was definitely one of the more unique interviews I've done because we talked about a lot of stuff that I don't normally talk about. Mm-hmm. So she thanked me for that, which is definitely good to hear from someone like her, you know? Like, I feel like I'm doing my job in that sense. The biggest reward I have in this is asking people questions that they've never heard before. Mm-hmm. Like, last week's guest, David Meltzer, does interviews all the time. Like, he gave me 20 minutes, and I asked him two different questions that he's never heard before, and he was just laughing to himself. Like, I love that more than anything else. Definitely. Because now I'm doing something, again, I was a quiet kid growing up, had no idea how to even lead a conversation with anybody. Now I'm able to open up a different side of their brain and ask them things that, again, millions of other people have never asked them before. So cool. I love that. So 
a lot of times with shows like this, because like your show doesn't have any specific topic, like you know, there's true crime podcasts, there's you know, sports podcasts, and obviously you like have a little bit of a leaning towards sports, but yours is, I would say, like almost in the Joe Rogan category, it's really just about anything and stuff like that. But yet, I still feel like your podcast has like an identity, a brand, and the style that. How do you like make each show feel cohesive and feel like it like is like the same like brand while still being about going from you know. Darius Rucker, you know, WWE, baseball, you know, other guests that are just in sales or, like, things that are completely unrelated to entertainment. How do you, like, make it feel still like the same show despite such a different topic matter? Again, that kind of stems back um, to me not caring about what anybody thinks of it, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, there are people that start baseball podcasts or sports podcasts or podcasts about empowerment or podcasts about... Um, business, and it has to be that exact thing. You know, you have certain segments that you do, you play certain games. I really don't care. Like, I, I want to use this as a platform for myself to interview people, again, kind of grow as an interviewer. As a young kid starting this when I was 19, now 22 doing this, I don't, again, mom and dad listen, my sister Megan, my brother Declan, they listen. You listen sometimes, at least you tell me that. I feel like you have to tell me that. I do, I do listen. I do only listen to the sports ones. I will be honest. I, I, that's just my my. my but again, I, I interview people that I want to talk to. Mm. You know, it, it doesn't stem from like, oh, what, what's my audience going to think? Yeah. Like, I, again, whoever listens to this, thank you. Like, that's why we're in the position we're in today. You know, the fact that I, I've been able to grow this into what it's become and I hope to grow it even more. At this point, it hopefully grows within the next five, ten years. I, again, I want to do this till the day I die. Like, mm. I, I could care less. Awesome about, you know, numbers and listens. and mm. uh, uh, I, I've been doing this free for three years. Nice. I don't care. I think this is my passion. I love Would that. it be great to make a ton of money off of it? it sure. It would always be great. But, you know, this is a passion thing for me, mm-hmm. and I don't think that passion's ever going to die in that regard because I just I love storytelling, and I love getting to tell people stories, and hopefully that molds into something bigger mm-hmm. that's on the horizon sooner or later. Speaking of on the horizon and bigger things, so something new, obviously, as you can, the fact that you can see me is clear proof of this. Well, you got video. Video is there. Obviously, you've been doing Zoom calls and stuff like that, and you've had video components, but this studio space, you know, I think it's the fourth or fifth episode, I think, in this, in this studio, and obviously, this was a huge deal. It allows it to be, like, that nice vibe that you cut between cameras and all this nice, like, production value. Are there any other, like, goals moving fo- forward in terms of, like, things you want to add to the show, whether it's visual things or audio components, whether it's, like, you want to start, like, releasing segments, more things. Are there any, like, ideas that you have in terms of now that, like, things are, you've gotten the ball rolling on video you want to do going forward? That's a Zach question as it's ever going to get dealing with audio and graphics. You know, like, again, the way this is set up right now, I'm content with doing this Thanks. forever. You know, like, again, I, I don't care how... I mean, it's important for it to be produced and, mm-hmm. you know, have, have good sound. We have Robin over there who's doing a great job. Um, and, and she's been doing this with Star Worldwide Networks and Dave Pratt and Rob Trigg and everybody that's, you know, given us this opportunity to be here and work here and use this studio mm-hmm. for, for, for many years. But, um, again, like, it, it's all about, you know, me doing my job as an interviewer, making sure that my guests are as comfortable as they are, making sure they're having a good time as much as I'm having, you know? Because like you can tell whether they're, they're there to yeah. promote something and they just want to get in and out or if they're there and they're genuinely happy to talk to you. Mm. You know, because, again, doing 300-plus interviews, you've seen almost everything. Yeah, oh, makes, not quite. Mm. I think my almost. favorite moment is, like, when they think that when they come in thinking they want to be in and out, but then, like, you see that moment where they're, like, where, like, you ask them a question or something like that and they're, like, oh, you know, this is a conversation I want to stay in there and it goes a little bit longer than it should and stuff like that. I think that's great. That's how you know an interviewer is doing their job correctly. Um, speaking of, like, interviews and stuff like that, are there any moments, because with the last show, it was, you know, all about, like, coaching and stuff like that in terms of life and sales and, like, improving yourself. Is there any episode when you were listening to an actor or a baseball player or a commentator where, like, you, were, you asked them a question and you got an answer that not only you didn't expect, but changed the way that, like, you you approach things so like it, you did, it didn't sound like a cliche like just like motivational thing where it's like that's gonna stick with me like that's so like obviously like they you have questions that stick with the guest but have you ever got an answer that's really stuck in with you? 
I mean, there's a ton. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but there's been a ton of guests over the past few months that I walked away from those conversations inspired, mm-hmm. you know, and that makes me hungry to do more conversations um, like that. Uh, Chad Michael Murray, who's an actor, um, his big thing was One Tree Hill. I don't know if you ever saw that yeah, show, yeah. Rona. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he kind of talked about some of his past acting experiences, you know, kind of how he molded it as, you know, as a dumb kid pulling pranks <laughs> on set that cost him thousands of dollars. And he was able to use that and, you know, be like, never do that, you know. And uh, Sean Prez, who's a great guy, he's a music producer, was P. Diddy's manager for almost a decade talked about, you know, some of the grinding moments in his life, you know, kind of starting out and not making any money doing what he loves, but, you know, telling himself the money will come, and it mm-hmm. did, and now he's making a lot of money. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest thing, you know, working in podcasts, working in radio, working in broadcasting, you're not making a lot of money, but you're doing what you love, and that that's the most important thing. Like, you show up for work every day, and you're doing what you love, and you're able to, again, support yourself you're not making big bucks like an accountant or Mm -hmm. someone in finance you know some kids I know out of school making you know 100 g's right off the bat Mm -hmm. as a 22 year old kid which is great and all you know kind of jealous sometimes when I can't you know eat as much as I want to but at the end of the day I'm doing what I love to do and I've gotten to interview some of my Mm -hmm. biggest idols thus far you know it's amazing I love that I guess my the next the next question I would have is so obviously, so you've been doing it out of your room for the longest time and stuff like that, and obviously through Zoom calls and everything. You talk about a lot of it like blew up during COVID. Do you, how do you manage the difference when you have a per, someone in person and like a Zoom interview for people watching that may want to start their own podcast or people that like maybe you know even post COVID they can only get interviews like you know via like Zoom and stuff like that. What's your advice to tell them how to, like, when you don't have that physical connection, you can't, like, really look at them directly in the eye? How do you, like, build that rapport in a digital environment? Are you talking about either via Zoom or over the phone? Yeah, either Zoom, way, yeah. Zoom, I know it's kind of tough to do it over Zoom, but Zoom, you're able to at least see their facial expressions. Mm. You're able to read their body language in, in some type of way, as long as it's not, you know, like facing out, yeah, you, know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, over the phone's tough. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you'll say something witty and then five seconds go by and you don't hear anything. And then they laugh. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh. But, you know, over Zoom is, I honestly found it just as good as being in person. Because you're able to see their mm-hmm. face. You're able to, again, read their body language. And you're able to depict things and ask them things. And, you know, based off of the first ten seconds, you're in the Zoom call. You're like, okay, they're in a good mood. Mm-hmm. This is going to be fun. Or, okay, they're kind of on edge. I'll make sure to stay away from a few things. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, one of my favorite stories you told me is Kobe Smolders. Is that how you pronounce her That's name? That's her name. So, you told me that how that came about is you were supposed to get like a one minute, I think, thing yeah. there. And you were just sitting there. We have an example. Just sitting there on your phone like this. And then it was about to be your turn to start. And then like, just buffer. Just buffer. And you For told 35 me, minutes. So my hand fell asleep. I couldn't even move it. Which, one... That's incredible that it somehow took 35 minutes. But the fact that you stuck the 35 minutes, she, and she's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And, like, there's a little, like, timer that had the one. She's like, oh, let me change that. And she changed it from one to, like, 20, like 15, 20 minutes. And that's how you got the real thing, uh, full piece you got with her. I just think that's such a great moment of tenacity. Like, the ability to be like, no, I, I'm, uh, this is an opportunity. I don't care if my arm feels like it's about to fall off. I'm going to keep going through. And obviously it's your passion that goes through that. But what would you like tell other people listening was like, when you have that passion for stuff like that, but you hit like, obviously that wasn't the biggest roadblock, but it's still like that moment. You wouldn't have gotten that amazing interview if you had not, which has been like, Oh, it's buffering. Well, I guess no point in taking, like, what do you do at that point? Yeah. Don't give up. I mean, you're there for a reason at the same time. Like that was supposed to be. So her publicist is the same publicist as Corey Taylor, who's the lead singer mm-hmm. of Slipknot, and I got a chance to interview him. So as a thank you for that, he's like, yeah, we have a few meet and greets coming up virtually over, you know, iPhone, Zoom, whatever. And Kobe Smolders, my favorite show growing up, was How I Met Your Mother. Mm-hmm. She was Robin Trubatsky. So I was able to set up, it was supposed to be 60 seconds, right? Mm-hmm. And she um, just has a meet and greet. So like, hey, big fan, ask her a question, whatever. And she had me waiting for like 35 minutes. You know, like, literally, my hand was like this for 35 minutes, mm-hmm. falling asleep. I'm like, she's going to show up at any moment now. But as the time kept going on, I'm like, oh, my God. She finally showed up on the screen, 
And she's like, I'm so sorry. And there's a timer on the top right corner mm-hmm. that says one minute. She's like, ah, I'm still learning how to use this stuff. She taps it like three times, have 35 minutes. I'm like, now I have 35 minutes of Kobe Smulders when I thought I was going to have 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. And as not a seasoned interviewer, but you know, enough experience to where I'm like, okay, I know what her career is about. I'm a big fan of the biggest show that she's ever done. This is going to be fun. Mm-hmm. And it was just a casual conversation because she was such a sweet girl too, you know, like sweet actress who is very nice, asked me a lot about my life too, as opposed to me just talking about her and her career. You know, she's done a lot of those Marvel movies. She's uh, Captain Hill in the Avenger movies yeah. with Samuel L. Jackson. And um, she was just great talking about, you know, what her thoughts were on, on the show because there's a lot of people that were kind of skeptic of the final episode and the series finale of mm-hmm. How I Met Your Mother. And we actually have a snippet of that show. That was episode 262 uh, of the podcast that we did in the fall with Kobe Smulders. Again, she portrayed Robin Scherbatsky and How I Met Your Mother. She was Agent Hill in the Marvel's uh, um, Avengers series. So uh, let's take a listen. This is Kobe Smulders on episode 262. Sarah. How's it going? Good, how are you? Not too bad. Thanks so much for doing this. I'm a big fan. Oh my fan. gosh, I'm sorry if you were like waiting. I don't, you know, this is my first time doing any kind of like weird timed conversation, but I just like, I just keep pressing this plus button because I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> it's all good. It's all <laughs> how good. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Are you in, uh, where are you staying? Are you in LA, I'm New in, York? I am in the Los, the Los Angeles of California. Sweet. How's Where everything are you at? There? Uh, it's fine, you know. It's fine. It's life is life is what it is. <laughs> How are you, and where are you? I am in Phoenix, so about okay. six hours uh, south, north, wherever. Yeah, things are probably the same. Yeah, pretty, but it's much hotter where you are, dude. You're like in the desert. I feel it's nuts. It's like nine. It's ninety degrees right now, and there's no sun. It's just pitch black outside. That's so weird. But I love it. Did you grow up there? I grew up in New Jersey. Whoa, so this is this is a big change for you. Oh, yeah, right outside when, Manhattan. So, of course, I was a big How I Met Your Mother fan growing up. Oh, yeah. Probably get that all the time. I know. How old like are you? What, what age did you find it? What age did it come to you? Because you're younger than I am. Yeah, so when you guys started, 05, it was about... I was like six, seven years old. So I probably discovered yeah. it like as you guys were wrapping up. So I, right, I had to catch up. Right. It's so weird to me. Um, like I will meet somebody like a kid who's like 13 and they're like, yeah. Oh my God, how I met your mother. I love it. I was like, you were not born, bro. Like when we started the show, you were not in existence. I know. And that's that, so wild. That was like the one thing I kind of wanted to pick your brain about was yeah. the, the, the series finale, so... Oh, yeah, tell me what you think. From the fan, so I personally loved it. I, I know there's a few well, of my buddies are, that I watched. You are in the... You are not one of... You are the, the, the very few. One of the very few. I, that's what I was going to say. There was, like, a ton of mixed reactions yeah. for it. And, like, you being one of the stars of the show, like... What, what did you think about it when you first got that script? Because, like, the final episode, to me, you guys could have done, yeah. like, 15 more seasons on that last oh, episode absolutely. alone. You know, it's... Um, Nine years was, I think, enough. I mean, I think we were, first of all, we were, like, super lucky because you're, it's so rare. First of all, like, when you get that kind of a job, you think, we're going to shoot a pilot episode, which is the very first episode, and that'll be it. And then we were lucky enough to get, like, 13 more episodes, and then we were able to get, like, a full season. And then it just kind of kept going. So it is such a rare thing to... In that first season, we shot um, video of the kids responding about, oh, you know, you think you you love you, you're into Robin or whatever it was. And I just right. In a minute, um, and we shot that in the first season, right? And then you cut to nine years later, and you're able to to air that, and you're able to like do that whole story with that bookend is very, very, very rare. Yeah. So quite honestly, I was so, I was so in it that I wasn't thinking about, um, I think what was happening in the final season is there was a lot of pressure about like, people can't find out about this. Right. There's a lot of like secrecy because you have to understand, like, our show was never, when we were doing it, it was never, like, a huge hit. So there was never, like, a demand for what's going to happen in spoilers. There was, like, no spoilers. We were able to, like, do our job and kind of just kind of 
go to work every day and, and people like the show. But um, that was the first season that we were very aware of scripts getting out. Right. Like ruining kind of the, the show for, for everybody. And I think that's kind of what sped up the timeline, like like having like that last episode where it was like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, because I think they were so nervous about it leaking. Right. Um, and obviously, I don't know how they would have done it with all the information now or the, or the, the general consensus now, but um, I mean, I think that their story was always like it was Robin and Ted, and he's the one telling the story. Right. But so much time had passed, and people became um, really uh, into other partnerships, and so I think it it was it was strange for some people. I like to think, and I and I, I think I said this recently, and and people were very it very much disagreed with me, but I think that when you watch it. You know the way that the way that kids are watching it now. Kids, they're not all children, but like right. people who are discovering it for the first time, and they watch it from beginning to end. There is a bit more of a story. Like you're able to kind of still have that beginning of it, where when we were all watching it live, it was like Robin and Barney Central, right? Right. So it felt weird to then turn back to that, but I. I think I've heard from people that that is the takeaway that they understand that that is the story of it from the beginning. I, that was right. very long-winded. I'm sorry. I was like, <laughs> that was a very long answer. It's all good. I mean, my, my second follow-up to that would be like your favorite storyline overall. Cause like, like you said, like uh, Ted ending up with Robin in the end, like I think that's what everybody kind of assumed, even though you were dubbed aunt Robin after what the first episode, but still right. people kind of assumed right. that that's the way things were going to end. But what was your personal favorite storyline from that entire series? I mean, uh, on a selfish level, I love the Robin Sparkle stuff. Yeah. Because it was so weird and it was so strange to be like, I think it was second season. I think it was. And they kind of came at me and they were like, we're thinking about <laughs> making Robin like a Canadian pop star from the eighties. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> like, okay. And then it all just kind of like came out and it all just kind of happened. And it was, became so beloved that it was just, and it was honestly, it was so much fun, like shooting because we, we shot three days. So we would shoot Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, which is, by the way, the best job in the world. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but because of that, because of this shooting a music video on top, we shot like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And it was just kind of like magic to be like, we're taking the whole day to shoot this silly music video it was just so strange and um and, and and joyful you know what I mean like it was just it was just really fun so I loved that I loved any time that they infused music into our show Carter and Craig who are the, who are our creators they they were in a band they were like in a college yeah. together and they sing like the opening the ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba that's them that's their band um and so they always would like kind of infuse all of these cool, like obviously Neil is an amazing, you know, he's a, he's oh, yeah. a Broadway musical theater actor and, and, and Josh is too. Um, but so there was, there was that ability there anyway. Um, so, so it was, I always loved the, the episodes where they did that, but Robin Sparkles especially. Do you ever get people that just come up to you and just start blasting out, let's go to the mall? Cause that's like, a not song. so much anymore. <laughs> I used to like, Every time I do a panel, it comes up, um, but not so much anymore. It's kind of becoming a thing of the past, I guess. Uh, you got to bring it back. I brought it back tonight. Well, yes, th thank you. Thank thanks you for so that. much for taking time out of your Oh, thank you so much. Uh, stay safe. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thank you so yeah, much. That one was one of my favorites. I kind of got the ball rolling for some of the other ones that kind of have come in the last six or seven months. No, that one was great. You know, same hat, but no beard. You know, the same goes, some things change, but some things stay the same. I like it. Adapt or perish, baby. Adapt or perish. So the next thing I want to ask you is, so three-year anniversary, 360 episodes. 
I know it's harder to pick when a favorite child when you have like two or three. I'm asking you to pick between your favorite of 360 children. I don't think any parent would pick between two or three children. You know, the, I think every parent would say, oh, they're all my favorite. But, but you know? they have a secret answer, and I want to know your secret answer. What is your secret favorite Osho child? Um, I don't know if I have one specific one, because mm-hmm. again, there's so many, but some of my favorite interviews are the broadcasters. Yeah. There's one specific broadcaster, his name's Todd Grisham, uh, he broadcasts for the UFC, he broadcasts for Glory Kickboxing, and he used to broadcast for the WWE. Now, broadcasting for the WWE is a completely different element, because you have Vince McMahon in mm-hmm. your ear, and Vince McMahon, uh, I'm, I, I've never met the guy, I've never worked for him, but... Um, from what everybody says is that the guy is a micromanager, like the micromanager, does everything himself. He wouldn't ask you to do something he doesn't know how to do himself. He probably knows all the live production. Mm. He probably knows how to do sound, audio, video, camera work. He probably knows how to do everything. So he's constantly in in this guy's ear. And if you don't say something forbatim, what you said, you just hear it from him. So this is one of my favorite uh, podcast segments. This was episode 296 with uh, sports broadcaster Todd Grisham talking about his experience with Vince McMahon. He'd talk to you throughout the the, uh, fight. He'd tell you exactly what to say. And if you didn't say it verbatim, if he said, this guy may be the greatest to come out of Harrelson County, Georgia. If I said, this guy may be the greatest ever to come out of Harrelson County. You didn't fucking say Georgia. God damn it. That's not what I fucking said. Well, you're still calling the match. Hey, well, you're in a clothesline. While well, this guy is just completely undressing. You're the worst commentator I've ever fucking hired. No chance. One specific instance where you were on the mic and he was saying something so distracting that you were like, holy crap. Like, is this really happening right now? This wrestler named uh, John Morrison. Yeah. You know, parkour training, you know, that kind of surfer dude. And he, they loved to enter, what's the word I'm thinking for? Integrate the WWE magazine at the time. So any stories they write in there, they he would love it if you said, hey, in the latest WWE magazine, John Morrison talks about blah, 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 blah. Well, in the WWE magazine, he talked about how he loved poetry. And in fact, his, his finishing move, which was Starship Pain, yeah. he wrote a poet a poem about starship pain so in the middle of the match he does something and i say you know hey john morrison in the latest edition of wwe magazine uh wrote a nice poem and described where his bubble and vince man gets in my ear and goes did you just fucking say that our number one heel writes fucking poetry what the fuck is wrong with you and i was working with jr who's a legend JR, start talking. Todd, shut. You're not allowed to fucking talk anymore. Shut up. So I just sit there. The match happens. I don't talk for like eight minutes. JR told, says the whole thing. The, the match ends and he goes, All right, you can talk again. <laughs> can you imagine Joe Buck calling the freaking World Series in, in the fourth inning? The producer says, Don't talk until the sixth. That's what he told me <laughs> just because I said that John Morrison likes poetry. Just because you did your homework, really? Yeah, I did my homework. <laughs> I did what he told me to do, and I got punished. You know, I know you couldn't hear what he was saying in that, but it was basically, if you didn't say what Vince was saying forbatim in your ear, Mm. Vince would just go off. You're the worst fucking commentator I've ever hired. God damn, that's not what I said. How do you you broadcast when you have that in your ear? That's so much pressure. That's so much pressure. I'm curious what, like, being, like, related or, like, like a pers- like a personal relationship with Vince McMahon is like I'm curious what that would be like considering that's how he treats like his the professional relationships what those personal relationships would be like well that's a great segue Zach because I got a chance a few weeks ago during WrestleMania weekend to be a part of some media coverage got a chance to ask his son Shane McMahon a few questions probably one of the more um, eccentric human beings I've ever gotten a chance to talk to just stared straight into my soul was kind of intimidating but this is a snippet with. I think this is episode 347 of the podcast with Shane O'Mac. So out of all of these moments, like, what is your favorite WrestleMania moment? Hmm. No, I, I guess that goes back to WrestleMania 1, when the first ding, ding, ding was heard, and yeah. it started this franchise. 
I mean, you have so many to choose from. I mean, coming back, jumping off the top of the cell against Taker at WrestleMania 32. What was the tougher bump for you? WrestleMania 32, jumping off the cell in front of 100,000 people or jumping off the cell against Kevin Owens knowing that Sami Zayn was going to pull him away and that you kind of had to dodge both those guys? Well, Jack, definitely WrestleMania 32 coming off the top of Hell in the Cell was uh, the most devastating, also the most exciting for 100,000 people, including my kids, which uh, was a very special moment for me. And, of course, that's obviously a special night, you know, your first Mania back. And and this is going to be the first Mania without Pat Patterson, who I knew you were great friends with, very close to your family. What's that going to be like, and what was your favorite Pat Patterson story from, you know, your entire life, I guess? Well, there are so many, but uh, I miss miss Pat today, not being here. Very, very close friend of mine and my family. And so that last question I asked him, Pat Patterson, who's one of Vince's probably closest confidants, Mm -hmm. kind of his right-hand man for many years, passed away last year, I think. And I asked him what his favorite WrestleMania moment was with Pat, because this WrestleMania was the first without him. Mm -hmm. And he started tearing up, and I had no idea what to do. And everybody else in the conference room afterwards was like, nice job, you made Shane McMahon cry. Oh, my God. I So did you... When when he like cried in that moment, like obviously you experience a lot of different like emotions on that show. Is there any other? So on the other side of the spectrum, obviously there's a lot of like that's a huge emotional moment. You and like you didn't want him to like you don't want to like offend him or anything, but that's like a, you got him in a vulnerable moment. And it was like, a really unique thing. You like something that was you asked a question and like on a subject matter that was like close to him. Is there anything on like the other side where it's like a lot because a lot of the podcasts like information, but sometimes you just emotional like sad moments like that but on the other side are there any like moments where like you really laugh for a guest that you were just like they're like comedic timing whether it's on the show or just stories they told or just like their career itself like that you just like that that had the other side where it's just like instead of that sad moments that like laughter that like moment of relief well it's funny you mentioned that zach another great segue to another snippet but uh, this interview was probably one of my favorites because i didn't know what to expect from the guy and he turned out to be probably the nicest guy I've ever talked to. Gave me a ton of advice when it comes to uh, being a film person and writing scripts as a screenwriter. He uh, started as a writer for Saturday Night Live. He's obviously one of you know the quartet when it comes to Adam Sandler, David Spade, uh, Chris Farley back in the day, Chris Rock, and those guys. Um, you know he's got a new movie coming out soon that he's actually uh, filming out here in Scottsdale called uh, Daddy Daughter Daycare. Um, that's going to be coming out probably sometime next year, maybe two years from now. But this is an interview I did, and again, great guy. He called me handsome like three times throughout this interview, so i got to give him credit there. This is episode 308 with Rob Schneider. Jack. Rob Schneider, how's it going, man? How's it going, Jack? Where are you, handsome man? Where are you? I am in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. I'm your neighbor. Really? Are you here? I just moved. Well, I'm in, I'm in Tennessee right now. I'm in Nashville. Oh, so my brother lives in Nashville. Yeah, I'm. I'm playing at the Zanies for like we have 15 shows here. We're doing. Oh, that's sweet. So a lot of I, I know a lot of stuff is opening up down there now. Any, any, well, you're in a Republican state. I'm your neighbor, and thank God I moved out of California. I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> the problem is a lot of assholes like me, Jack, are moving there too, and they're voting the same. So oh, let that you. be a lesson. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I know we don't have a lot of time, so I kind of wanted to pick your brain about uh, one question. Yeah. What? Um, you know. Benchwarmer is probably one of my favorite comedy movies of all time. Big baseball fan. Oh, thank you. You guys, you know, you get to whack a bunch of mailboxes with a Hall of Famer and Reggie. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So just overall, that's got to be one of the coolest things ever because you get to whack a bunch of mailboxes with a Hall of Famer, some of your best friends and, you know, Spade and, and John Heater. Like, how was that experience for you guys and how was it for him? Was he very open to doing it right oh, yeah. away? You know, I always thought... You know, here's the thing, Jack. I always thought to myself, how are we going to get Reggie Jackson? He's a Hall of Fame. Like, these guys are dying to be in movies. They don't get offered movies. They get typecast. You know, I get typecast as a comedian. He gets typecast as only a baseball, you know, as as Mr. October. So when he's offered and paid to go out and we took him out to dinner and everything, he, um, he loved it. He was so happy you couldn't get rid of him. He said, what are we doing tomorrow? I said, that's it. So again, but he was able to tell stories, and he told me. So the cool thing about it, Jack, was like uh, he was able to say to like, you know, Mr. Steinbrenner, uh, 
You don't get he said you don't get paid for the season. You get paid for those 17 games in October. Yeah. All the way through the World Series. And you either the so I said you either like you get paid for those 17 days in October games and that's it. You're either the World Series champions or you're a loser. And that's it. So you have to deliver in the clutch. So it was just cool to be around somebody like that who really did deliver in the clutch. And he looked like he could still play. Oh, yeah. You know. I mean, he has like that self-discipline factor. Were you guys actually just in a random neighborhood just whacking a bunch of <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is we put up our own mailbox because if you hit something metal, you're going to get hurt. Oh, yeah. You, you're going to really mess yourself up. But when they put the nice balsa wood together and a little, you know, a little stick that you know, it was fun. I mean, like, literally, uh, it was hard because I was like, I was 40 at the time of 40, I was 40 years old. So 40, you're, you're healing and recovery times a lot. You know, that's why baseball players, you know, 40, it's over. It's over unless you're Tom Brady for some reason. Oh, yeah. So it was the recovery. That was the hardest part was, um, cause I would pitch and then you take a couple of days to recover. But I had this, uh, Chinese doctor that was Shaquille O'Neal's doctor, Dr. Shen. And I tore my shoulder because the, the director maybe pitched two days in a row without, you know, the three days rest minimum. Yeah? And uh, what it does is he just pokes your back and get, and then bleeds you like a stuck pig. Oh. And then, uh, but then that the healing comes in. So that's it. That's why like Shaq worked with him. Shaquille O'Neal was a guy that got hit in the stomach every game, like 50 times. And he never told anybody that, that was his weakness, but that was. He, and so he would need to literally get bled on his stomach to get so the bruises would heal faster so he could play again. Oh and uh, one time Kobe Bryant twisted his ankle and he said, he's not going to be able to play in two days. He went and saw Shen. Shen bled his, his ankle. And then he did play and scored 32 points, and then they won the, uh, the championship. That's nuts. I've never heard that story. Yeah, it's, 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 it's acupuncture, but it's acu, it's acu with, with cupping and extraction. But I'm just telling you, like, I hurt myself on the animal, and they think, oh, the movie's over. But that's when they got Shaq's doctor. He worked on me from like midnight till three o'clock in the morning, and it's just I had an old injury. So those old injuries, it's good because Western medicine doesn't know how to deal with like a tissue injury like that. If you, and you can't do surgery, or you're screwed forever. But did you play baseball? I did in high school, and then that's I, fun. I, I could never grow. So I was like, all right, in college, I'm going to become a broadcaster, and that's what I'm setting out to do now. I'm well, broadcasting. Good. I'm acting. I have a film minor. I'm screenwriting. Uh, maybe trying to dabble into what you do. Maybe not at the high level that you do it, but <clears throat> no, don't don't limit yourself. Just whatever the thing is that you're most excited about, focus on that. Keep an open mind to it, because the key to it is like you have so many hours in the day. Put it towards that, and the thing that's most exciting to you, you know. But broadcasting, you you got to start that young while right? you're now. You know, just uh, I, I would say just like for me, just just clean yourself up. You can shave your handsome guy, clean everything up, shorten, and just get out there and and. Uh, Start putting yourself in that position to do broadcasting and just shoot your stuff yourself. That's oh, yeah. the key. You know, you can actually shoot stuff, edit it, and put it out there yourself and get that going and then show it to a local news news channel and see if you can get on there. Because, oh, you know, those guys, they're dying to get people because they don't pay worth shit. But what you need right now is experience, you know, not the money, just to get out there and do it. Oh, so yeah. do the thing. That, and screenwriting is great. I would just say, if you like a movie, find the movie that you like and go online and get the script for nothing. They'll give it to you, or it's five bucks. Then read it and learn the structure of the script that you like. And then read it and read it until it doesn't become, you're not excited by it anymore. You're just seeing how they put it together. And then that will be, uh, you can open up and then figure out what to do there, you know? Oh, yeah. Did you, like in your experience, when, you know, first starting out, because I know you were a writer with SNL starting out, when you were writing some of your first screenplays and feature films do you look back at any and you're like oh my god that was like abysmal like i'm sure like everybody oh yeah stories but like were there any specific ones that you look back on and be like man that was really embarrassing not in a funny way but that was really well like there's some scenes in deuce piccolo too i wish i wouldn't have done you know there's some things like you know me wearing a diaper isn't exactly a most macho thing but the um yeah you just have to it's experiment and the thing is once you're emotionally connected in other words oh oh i love that like ah yeah yeah then, then you're onto something. When you're looking for it, well, maybe this would be a good idea. Maybe that would be. Then it's intellectual, and it's not felt from an emotional place. So you have to trust not to work it too much. You have to do after you have that inspiration. Then it takes the perspiration to do the, the work. But it's got to come from, oh, yeah, we can do this. But if, you, if you're not sure, you'll know when it's the idea that you have to follow through. 
then you have to just keep following through. But yeah, but you know, failure is an important part. I mean, most of the time when I first performed, it was bombing. And I remember getting off stage, and this is true, Jack, I felt like my, I bombed so badly. Uh, one night, I felt like my ears were melting off my face from humiliation. And I said, I want to remember this so that I can remember to not let this get to me like this. And I said, I'm going to go to my belt. The audience can get to me there, but no lower. Yeah. Because the important stuff's under there. I'm not going to let it get me. And then you just have to just focus in on um, the thing that you love, and then it'll come. And it'll come from work. And then, boom, it's going to come. But the thing about it is to not worry about the result too much. I tell young people this, too. Don't worry about what it can get you. Stay in the excitement of it. And then that's going to get everything you've ever imagined. Just right. stay in the excitement of it. Too many people focus on what it can get me money right now and this and that. And so, you know, I would rather... I did shit jobs, 12 shit jobs that I didn't care about. And I got fired from... That's why I had 12. I got fired because I didn't care about them. And I, can't, I have to say, I was a shitty employee, but I was painting houses, selling shoes. I was a busboy. I was like, fuck this. And they said... You're fired. I was like, fuck you. I'm just here just to make a few bucks. Man. Yeah. I didn't I didn't sign up to be a fucking bus boy, you know? Right. I'm just, and I was a dishwasher, which was the best job because no one was bugging me. But then at night, I was able to go out and, and go to, and then wait in line until I could do stand-up. And then I, I said, I'm going to get great at this. And then I would look at all these other comedians and I go, well, how am I going to get, how am I going to make it? And these other people aren't. I mean, what's the difference? What's going to be the difference? I said, well, I'm going to work harder. So I would write and make uh, and sit and have a cup pot of coffee, and then just start writing jokes. And still to this day, this is all this stuff right here. This is all a pad of of stuff, and it's all filled. Yeah. So I used it still work, but I do love it, you know. And so stay in the passion of it, Jack, and then uh, you know it's going to be good for you. Right. I mean, passion is the foundation, you know. Like as you know, it's all about self-discipline in that factor. Like, never taking no for an answer, never really letting others outside, you know, negativity take you down, in a sense. It's true. You um, yeah. Avoid the negative people. But And also, you say yes to stuff. Every time you say yes, it's an opportunity. Oh, yeah. You know? It can be like, I mean, I said yes to do a movie. It wasn't that good. It was called uh, American... Uh, I forget what it was. But, like, I took a chance, and that one didn't work. But, like... You take chances, and then stuff will open for you. And uh, but the more you do your own stuff, then you're in control. When you're not in control is when you're waiting for somebody else to hire you. Start doing your own stuff. Start writing. Get your friends. Get anybody that you can to want to do it together with you, with what you want to do. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. We're doing a movie. By the way, we're doing a new movie in Arizona. It's called Daddy-Daughter Trip. Find out where, it's, where it's, they're going to start crewing up soon. Get over there and see if you can get on it. That'd All be right. Awesome. Yeah. Find out Daddy Daughter Trip. Look it up. Do your work, and then and then find it. Daddy Daughter Trip. Shannon Gardner is the is the producer. Okay. Oh, interesting. In in Scottsdale. Okay, buddy. Let me grab these other people. I wish you the best, Jack. I hope to see you again sometime. Hey, thanks so much for taking the All time right. to do that, and thanks so much for the uh, words of encouragement too, man. All the best. You can do it, Jack. <laughs> All thanks, night brother. long. <laughs> yeah, that was probably one of the more types of interviews that I was being taught something as opposed mm. to him just sharing his experiences. He was teaching me lessons in film. You just did a film too. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. My, I'm doing ADR for it. That should be coming out soon. Burden. Look out Look out for it. So that'll selfless be, plug. Absolutely. Absolutely selfless plug. That's how it goes. But I definitely will actually take some of that some of that advice. He gives a bunch of screenwriting tips. I definitely like to know from an SNL writer because great had a great run on SNL and his great movie career. So I definitely like to take that advice. But to wrap up this show, I got I I gotta ask because I, I know my answer personally. Uh, uh, but what do you think? What episode do you think resonates most with your audience, that your listeners, that like just really like hits them, like just resonates with them? Well, what's your personal one? I think the personal one for me is probably the Shane McMahon one because I didn't see I didn't watch all of it but yeah I did see like parts of it and I think what made it resonate to me was just the fact that he's so um he's he that to us man so like people that are so eccentric like that that they can like be so grounded and so like rudimentary because we think them as crazy and stuff like that but to see a more grounded version of people in like in that world in a more grounded sense and like just anyone like Carol Baskin's another one that's super like when they're eccentric and stuff like that that it and show a more grounded version of them that 
I just really resonate with those. Yeah, Carol Baskin is probably the one that resonates with my audience the most just because of <clears throat> the documentary mm-hmm. that came out, Tiger King, a few uh, last year. It was like right when COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Um, that hit, and it came out. Millions upon billions of people around the world watched it. And she um, kind of got duped into doing it. And she'll mm-hmm. kind of explain this in this snippet. This is episode 330 of the podcast with, again, the CEO of Big Cat Rescue, Carol Baskin, kind of talking about the documentary and how she was kind of duped into doing it and how some of the things that are said about her regarding her late ex-husband and so on and so forth and everything that went on is kind of, you know, falsely said in the media. So this last snippet will wrap up today's show. Again, I'm not that pompous of a person. I will probably not talk about myself as much as I did today. I had Zach come in here and interview me on the show. This was episode 363 years in celebration of the O Show. Thanks again, Mom and Dad, for watching every episode. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dave Pratt, for giving me the opportunity to uh, work with such amazing people in this amazing studio. But this is episode 330 of the O Show with the one, the only, Carol Baskin. Enjoy. And then you look at, you know, the Joe Exotics and the the Doc Antles. And yes, I think, obviously, the media and the documentary is going to make out everybody in the documentary to seem a little off, a little crazy in that sense. But of of course, on their end, like, it it turns out they're not only abusing their animals, but like, it's just an overall bad environment. You know, the people that that they're surrounding themselves with, the, the situations that they're getting in on the business side as well. I thought was very strange. And on your guys' end, you didn't even, like, realize what, you know, they were filming when they were filming it originally, right, when it came to producing that whole documentary? No, we didn't, because when they came to us, they said the name of it was going to be called Stolen Wildlife and that this was going to be the blackfish for big cats. Did you see blackfish? I did, actually, yeah. So the, the end result of Blackfish was there were so many people who didn't know how horrible it is that they were ripping these orcas away from their families and keeping, keeping them in these tiny concrete pools and then making them perform and how they would die so frequently because they were so miserable in captivity and you just can't give them enough space. And all of the reasons that they showed in Blackfish for why we should not have orcas and dolphins and all of these amazing intelligent creatures in concrete pools and it caused a change SeaWorld said this is the last generation of orcas they're going to have in their facilities and they stopped their shows right away and so that was the show we thought we were working on and when everybody else was seeing the same thing we saw in 2020 the teasers coming out for Tiger King the producers of the show we thought we were working on had told us you know when they would ask me questions about Joe I'd be like why are you asking questions about him and they said, well, you know, he's one of those guys that's breeding these animals. And he says all this nasty stuff about you. So we just want to give you a part of it. And they promised he would be like five minutes of this show. And the show would be all about the issues and what people could do. And so when the trailer started coming out for Tiger King, we called him up. And we were like, who's working on that show? Because usually anybody who's working on any kind of big cat show comes to us. They need footage. They need quotes. <laughs> So it was like, we don't even know who that would be, who would be doing a show like that. And then they didn't want to talk to us anymore. And so we sat down and binge watched it just like everybody else did and discovered that it was them. And we could not believe that that was the end result of five years of giving them all the information they needed to create a Blackfish, a really important film. And this freak show is what they came up with instead. So that was really disappointing. I mean, and that's very manipulative, kind of, in a sense, and, like, I guess that's what they say about Hollywood, too. I mean, that's at least what I've grown up being told about, you know. It's weird how they literally, like, you didn't have any sort of say in how that was going to go. Like, even after they made it, like, I figured that you'd have to have, like, some sort of consent from the people that were involved in order to create it that way. I mean, they did get consent forms, and the consent forms was they could use whatever they filmed, but they didn't give us any control over what their end product was and sure didn't give us any any clue as to what that thing was going to turn out to be because that was nothing like what we were pitched towards the actual show. What what exactly were you and your husband thinking when you sat down and watched that for the first time? Because, again, like, it probably was the most watch documentary in 2020 because it came out literally when the whole world went you know nuts with the pandemic and everything 
Yeah, I think that created a perfect storm. Um, and here's what I, I, I've had a lot of time to think about this. And it seemed to have come at a time, of course, when everybody had just gone into lockdown. Everybody was scared. We didn't know what was going to happen with our jobs or with our families. Were we all going to die from this thing? And everybody was looking for somebody to blame for the fact that we were all stuck in this situation. And here comes Joe Exotic saying, everything in the world, it's Carol Baskin's fault. It's effing Carol Baskin's fault. And I think that's why that whole thing with the memes and everything took off. Even though people didn't you know, consciously think that I was responsible for COVID, I think there was this need to find somebody that everybody could hate on at one time. And that I became that poster child for that based on the way that I've been portrayed in Tiger King. So I think it was kind of perfect, perfect setup for that. But as far as watching it, I mean, we binge watched it because did you, there was a podcast that Robert Moore did in August of 2019. So Tiger King came out like six or eight months later. Oh, it was like uh, the wonder something, right? Wondery, yeah. Yeah, right. And so the way his podcast went, and it was about the same thing, it was like seven or eight episodes, and it starts out the same way Tiger King did, where you're seeing, you're meeting all of these crazy people, and he painted it as this feud, which is bizarre, because I've never even spoken to Joe Exotic, but he painted it as a feud. And then, at the very end, he said, but you know what? I found out that I was being lied to, and here's the truth about all these people that are breeding and exploiting these animals, and here's the truth about Carol. She has this beautiful sanctuary, and you know, all, he came clean at the end of it, and he said the reason that he wanted people to kind of go down that path with him the way that he, he showed it was because that was the way he was led into it. He believed all of these people, the Tantals and the Tabros and the Joe Exotics, he believed them, and then he found out they were lying to him. And so he wanted the public to see that same kind of trajectory. So we sat through Tiger King thinking, okay, they're going to follow that same thing. You know, they're just copying Wondery. And they never got to the point where they said, but all these people were liars and none of these animals serve any conservation. They didn't get to any of that. Instead, they left it hanging on, you know, well, this is just all horrible and nothing's ever going to change for the animals. And then it was the end. And then they said, well, we're going to do this like eighth episode or seventh episode. So we sat through that and that was just awful, that thing <laughs> they did where they were like talking to people from Tiger King. But it didn't answer any of the questions that were raised in Tiger King, so even when they had the opportunity to fix the problem, they still didn't do it. That was my biggest takeaway after finishing that. Like, at the end, it was more about, you know, this feud between Carol Baskin and Joe Exotic, and it was not about the animals at the end, which... And even a few of the people that were interviewed on his side were like, this has gone far enough when it comes to being about two people that it shouldn't even be about. It should be about the animals that, again, are either losing their lives or being abused or are currently in the wrong situation that they shouldn't be in, which I thought was very, and again, like from the media side, that's what makes good TV, especially in a time where everybody is stuck in their homes doing absolutely nothing. They need something to again, binge watch and, and, and look at and analyze and see like, okay, like, Oh, I saw this. I know exactly what's going on now. Like, I feel like a lot of people jump to the conclusions just like, Oh my God, like Joe exotic, Terrell Baskin, doc Annell, what they're doing, whatever. And like in, in your case, again, because like, you had to, again, go through this stuff with the media back then. Now it's a different time, you know, 2020. As soon as this gets out, it's the biggest documentary that there is uh, at the time. And people are probably coming at you left and right, social media, media interviews, all of this stuff, you know, kind of reopening that door of whether it was stuff regarding Big Cat Rescue or, or controversies or all of this stuff. Do you think that this, you know, it obviously gave you guys publicity, but at the same time, like like you said with the documentary, there were a lot of negative aspects to it. You know, even though, the, you know, overall it was just, I feel like, such a betrayal, the way that I was portrayed and the things that they did to us, I really feel like it, it turned out exactly as it needed to, because I believe everything, no matter how horrible, including COVID, right. um, Everything is happening for a reason, and it's all really for the good, and we need to find what that good is in it, and so that we learn and grow from it. And so I think the good that came out of Tiger King being so popular, one was, you're right, I mean, when my husband disappeared in 1997, that was a very different time than it is from now. And so having people look at it with fresh eyes and going over the evidence again and all of that, I think has been very helpful 
and maybe we will find out something that we weren't able to find out then. Maybe something has changed in somebody's life since then that they were willing to talk now that wasn't willing to back then. So I think those are all positive things. And I think the platform that I have been given by the media, by virtue of the fact that everybody wants to rehash Tiger King, they have at least given me the opportunity to try and bring it back to the animals and to say, you know, that was that was a dumpster fire and I'm glad you enjoyed it. But here's what's important. We're going to lose the tiger in the wild if we don't do something like right now. And the very first thing we have to do is stop the cub petting because that is what's driving all of the breeding, discarding, and it's growing the market for their parts and for their derivatives that are putting pressure on the wild population. So that's why we have to stop it right now. And so I don't think I ever would have had that level of exposure to the media had it not been for being portrayed as some villainous, money-grubbing, tiger-loving, husband-killing bitch. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.